0: I've got two readings. First is from Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4. And it's page 1249 in the Bibles in front of you, or 1962 in the large print Bibles. So Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, for the old order of things has passed away. And then a second reading is from Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 48, page 1054 in the Pew Bibles, or 1683 in the large print Bibles. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethridge and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, He sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Tell them, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, "'Why are you untying the colt?' They replied, "'The Lord needs it.'" They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, long people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen.'" Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the teachers, the leaders among the people were trying to kill him, yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Heather, very much indeed for that uh, clear reading. Thank you very much. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this uh, special day on which we can pause in the middle of our, uh, the journey of our lives to just reflect on the journey that lies ahead of us. We pray that now we might just begin to enter into the story of jesus journey to the cross in a a fresh way a deeper way and we pray that tonight through this week through good friday and to easter day we might be entering deeply into this story and rooting ourselves again in its significance for our lives we pray in jesus name amen well good evening everyone This light is so bright, it's actually, I'm just sort of trusting you're all out there somewhere. Um, But uh, I I think you are. Uh, A couple of days ago, I came across on the BBC website a summary of a report published by a body that I don't often consult called the Office for National Statistics. Uh, It hasn't resourced many of my sermons. Uh, But it does this one. Um, It was a report that the Office on National Statistics had conducted on uh, deprivation in, I think, just England, not in the United Kingdom. And it was a bringing together or an analysis of many other fields of research that had been done uh, in recent in recent times. And it brought together many many aspects of. Uh, life in different towns and cities and communities across across the nation, uh, education and health and social welfare and employment and uh, mental health and uh, just everything you could you could think of there had been a, a massive attempt to integrate this into um, uh, a survey about deprivation in this country and um, I, I, I hope to go back and look at it in more detail because i 'm sure it to be really really revealing really interesting but but the headline was this the town in this country that suffers most deprivation uh, in in that very broad sense of the word uh, is Oldham part of Greater Manchester and the town city community which uh, suffers least deprivation in England is? Guildford. Thank you. I, I had a strange reaction to that. I, it didn't feel like something to celebrate particularly. It rather, there was a sort of strange feeling in the pit of my stomach, a sense of actually... I'm not going to be able to walk away from this. Actually, this is a rather important piece of information. It actually has something significant for me to understand, and for us as a church to understand. Now, deprivation can mean different things, and it is not to say that our town has no uh, areas or aspects of deprivation. Uh, We are still a town that needs food banks, that needs debt counseling, that needs an organization like BISM, which helps uh, families with furniture and, uh, and other goods when they are in need. We have a homelessness problem. Um, it's not to say that there aren't problems or uh, aspects of deprivation in our town. But it does say that by comparison with virtually every other town or urban community in our country, we are extraordinarily well-placed. And here's a question I'd like to throw out at this point, and we'll come back to it at the end of what I have to say. Let's just suppose that's true for the moment. All these things, of course, can be opened up and argued about. Let's just take it at face value. We are probably the best resourced, or one of the best resourced churches in Guildford, which is the least deprived town in the country. That's us. That's this church of 500, 600 people, four congregations, um, our wealth of uh, activities and ministries for young people, for, for children, for everything that we do. This church, with its many resources, is perhaps the, rich, the most richly resourced church in the town that is the least deprived in the nation? I think that raises some very big questions. I think that raises some very interesting questions. I think it raises some questions that really need some profound prayer and reflection uh, in order to think, well, what does, where does that lead us? What's the significance of that? How should we as a church respond in ministry and in mission in, in the light of that kind of information? Let's just let that rest there for for a moment. Cities are the new, uh, not new, they are the newly emerging dominant social reality of our globe. 74% of people in the developed world, countries like our own, live in great cities. 44% of people in the developing world, uh, so-called, live in great cities overall more than 50 percent of the human race now lives in great cities Uh, many of you will have traveled and you will have seen uh, what that means on the ground when I had the opportunity to go to China a couple of years ago I I was really staggered by what urban life and high-rise buildings mean in, in our world I had never seen anything like it in Shanghai, outside the airport, to the horizon, to the horizon in all directions. High-rise buildings uh, full of people. And on our travels, you would pass forests. There is no other word for them. Forests of high-rise buildings, some of them occupied, some of them being built, um, and and so on. Just colossal. This picture here, which I, 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 I think it may be Macau, in China, I'm not sure, Um, there are hundreds of high rise buildings in in that picture. And it captures what life is like for now half the human race. Cities are very ambiguous places. They are places of blessing in some ways. They are places of community. They are places of complex uh, interrelationship. They are places of opportunity, places of industry and prosperity. They are places of culture and art. They are places where ethnic groups and cultures mix. They are places of freedom. They are places of hope. On the other hand, they are places of isolation, and they are places of loneliness and alienation, places of poverty, places sometimes of oppression, and fear. They are very commonly places of criminality. And we know that across our country, um, and not just in great cities, but in elegant towns, uh, sexual exploitation and human trafficking uh, have become deeply embedded. And Guildford is no exception to that. Our cities are very ambiguous places and uh, they are the places where uh, an increasing proportion of the human race lives. In the next uh, 20 years, two billion people, it is estimated, will move into such uh, massive high-rise cities. Let's just let that sit there for a moment. The Bible also has a very ambiguous approach to to cities. It recognizes their existence and their power and position. You'll remember right back at the beginning of the Bible, the story of the the city of Babel and how that's uh, presented there as a uh, humanity's... Uh, effort to come together in unity to overcome the difference of language and culture and to build something together and what starts with a desire for unity becomes a massive exercise in pride and arrogance as they try to build a tower up to heaven and God breaks that down and and scatters them but there's uh, a powerful message in in that about the potential uh, the blessing and the curse of uh, city life. And the Old Testament, of course, is full of uh, cities that are, ob- uh, that are places of corruption and power uh, and violence, and they become bywords for that uh, in, in, in the Bible and since. Nineveh, Babylon, and in New Testament times, of course, Rome itself. Jerusalem, of course, well, maybe that's, that's different. Jerusalem is the city of David. Uh, Jerusalem is the city of God. It's Zion. It's the, when you come to Zion, you are coming to the place where God dwells in his temple. You are coming to the center of the universe in Jewish thinking. You are coming to the holy city. But it is also, uh, and scripture is incredibly candid about this, the place of corruption and idolatry and rebellion. It's the place of corrupt power. It's the place that kills the prophets. Uh, Even today, uh, Jerusalem is a place conflicted at every level. And it's extraordinary that a place so divided, so full of hostilities, so prone to violence and hatred, uh, is just instinctively called the holy city. There's nothing more holy about Jerusalem than any other city. So that's a little bit of the, the framework in which we, we need to think about the, the story of Jesus coming to, into Jerusalem in this uh, dramatized way. He's come on a long journey from the far north, from Caesarea Philippi, where he had made clear to the disciples that his calling, his identity, as the Christ, the Messiah, God's anointed one, the one who came to bring God's salvation into the world, not only for Israel, but for the the whole world, that this was actually a journey of suffering that would result in his death. That's where he spoke about that to his disciples for the first time, and that's where the journey to Jerusalem begins. And so our story today is about his entry into Jerusalem, knowing that this is a a journey that will culminate in arrest, betrayal, suffering, and death. The donkey ride, which we uh, celebrated magnificently this morning in uh, our family service um, with uh, a donkey on two legs who gave Jesus a piggyback, but the story which we celebrated so wonderfully this, this morning was a piece of planned drama. It is an enactment of uh, an Old Testament prophecy that when God's chosen one, when God's king, when God's Messiah eventually came, he would not come on a great war horse, he would not come with power and glory and force and power, he would come in simplicity, humility and he would come riding on a donkey. That wasn't a a shameful form of travel in Old Testament times. It was a very respectable form of travel, but it spoke of peace and simplicity, not of power and war. And so Jesus begins this this final stage of his journey into Jerusalem with this acted parable. And it's a context of conflicting views and conflicting emotions and conflicting expectations. Luke uh, spells that out rather clearly and makes it plain that the, the people who are doing the celebration, the people who are saying Hosanna to the Son of David, are the disciples and followers of Jesus, the crowd that had come with him uh, to the city. And it is the population of, of Jerusalem who are sceptical, reserved Cynical, fearful, fearful of what uh, Roman backlash there might be. And so it's it's an emotionally fraught situation that we, we have read about here of Jesus acting in a deliberate way in confrontation to the political systems, the political rivalries, the power grabbing, the greed. and the the corruption of, of Jerusalem itself, by presenting himself as the messianic king from the Old Testament, the one who comes in peace and humility. So on that day, choices are being offered. Conflict is there. Decisive choice has to be made. If you follow the path today down the Mount of Olives, and it's very probably the the, the very path that Jesus walked on uh, 2,000 years ago, if you follow down that path, about two-thirds of the way down on the right-hand side, there is a little church, more like a chapel, actually. Um, It's very simple inside. It just has uh, benches and one window, a semicircular window. which looks out over Jerusalem. And the name of that ch- church is Dominus Flavit, the Lord Wept. And it's just traditionally kept um, as a site on which pilgrims, you and I, if we go, can remember this moment that's only recorded by Luke, where Jesus wept over the city. What was going on? What was happening at that moment? This was not planned. The riding on a donkey was planned. That's a a dramatic act planned for the message it gave. This is not planned. This is Jesus overwhelmed by emotion. And the Greek word there for weeping is is the most powerful word possible. Um, It's about deep sobs that come from deep within you, deep, noisy sobbing of grief. And he's in grief because he can see what is happening in in this moment, that as the king, the king of God's sending and anointing, comes to his city, he is already being rejected. He is already facing rejection and betrayal. Already the city that should receive its king is turning its back. And the words there, they're, He would have spoken in Aramaic and of course it comes through to us in Greek but even there it it captures something of that deep sobbing anguish as Jesus is profoundly aware of what is happening on that that journey. If only, if only you were aware, if, if only you could see what is happening today but you can't. Your eyes are closed. You are blind and you are deaf to what is really happening uh, before your very eyes today. And he has in mind the whole history of Jerusalem as a place which is the place where God's presence dwells, but it is the place that kills the prophets and rejects God's word. It's a moment of extraordinary anguish. And that depth of passion continues Uh, In the story, as Jesus moves into the city and goes to the temple, the place where God's presence dwelt and where the people came for sacrifice and for prayer, and he walks into a situation which is more like a market, where people are selling the animals that are needed for sacrifice, and it's a place of profit, and it's a place of commerce, and it's a place of prayerlessness. And he overturns the tables in the most violent act that that is recorded of Jesus, the most sort of uh, passionate act that, that we read of him, overthrowing the tables and the money changers and so on, and saying, you have turned my father's house, which is intended to be a place of prayer, prayer for all nations, you have turned it into a den of thieves. That is the, those are the powerful emotions that lie behind the story we've read this evening. That story is unique. That story captures the uh, unique journey of Jesus at this crucial, critical time of his life, uh, bearing his awareness of what it is to be the suffering servant, what it is to be the one called by God to bring his his way and his, his love into the world and to carry it out to the very end, even to death on a cross. It's unique, but it is also an illustration of how he confronts the life of the communities we live in. This evening I'd just like to suggest that we, we often and rightly think of the Christian journey in our personal terms and our personal response. This evening I'm just suggesting that as Jesus on that day was reflecting on the response of this city in its, in its entirety, that we think in more social terms this evening. And so our communities, our towns, our villages, our cities have before them the choices that lay before Jerusalem that day. We are in our town of of Guildford. It may not be the most deprived in the country. It may have um, many, uh, many blessings and many, many virtues. But it is a town that is also being confronted in the same way with whether it will live by the compelling forces of power and wealth and greed and selfishness, or whether it will allow itself to be challenged and changed and transformed by the gospel and by the one who comes, as it were, in the simplicity of riding on a donkey, bringing a message that is about peace that a message that is about humility, a, a message that is about the about self offering and uh, a different way of life drawn into god 's purpose for for humankind. So much more that that could be said on that. I want to finish now uh, with just three questions that arise out of this for me, going back to where we started with this rather sobering uh, Uh, um, research result that Guildford might perhaps be described as the least deprived place in our land. Imagine you're on the mount. It's interesting that we have a mount that overlooks our town, uh, not dissimilar to the Mount of Olives. And at the heart of that view, we've all been up there I'm sure, uh, is not the temple and is not the dome of the rock, but is actually our cathedral. There is, at the centre of that view, uh, the, the religious and spiritual hub of our town. Here's the first question that we might reflect upon. What do we see in our town as we look over it? What is there to celebrate our town? In what ways does our town reflect the values of God's kingdom in what ways has our town does our town respond knowingly or not to what the gospel is really about and the values the human values it proclaims but secondly when we look over our town what is there to weep over And thirdly, I think this is a really searching, difficult, but important question. What does being the least deprived town in England suggest for mission and ministry from St. Saviour's? We are in a remarkable and unusual position, actually, a rather tricky and difficult position. St. Saviour's might Be described as the most richly resourced church in the least deprived town in our nation. That's an extraordinary and exposed and a dangerous place to be spiritually I think. And uh, I I, I was quite sobered when I saw that uh, report in in the press Um, and thought seeing that I am not going to be able to forget that that will stay with me and I leave these three questions with us tonight I invite you to carry them with you and there may be real profit down the road in us reflecting on them as a church from our mount overlooking the town what is there to celebrate What is there to weep over? And how might mission and ministry from St. Saviour's look if we weighed
0: the extraordinary situation in which we live?